Hello and welcome to Signify Lighting Talks. My name is Jonathan Weinert, editor for the global brand and marketing team at Signify. This podcast series is our unbiased, unvarnished, and always engaging educational companion. It's an addition to what we bring to you via the Signify Academy, which you can find online at signify.com academy. In this series of episodes, we cover the intriguing and thought-provoking world of connected lighting. Today, we're going to talk about the six ages of light. And to do so, I'm joined by Mike Simpson, Global Application Lead at Signify. Hello, Mike, and welcome. Hi, Jonathan. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, Mike, I understand that you've been doing this lighting thing for decades and that you decided to go into lighting when you were growing up. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that and about your lighting experience over the years? Yes, certainly. Um, it's hard to know exactly when I, I first developed an interest in, in lighting, but I do remember as a small child uh, constructing little spotlight with a, a sweet tube and a torch and a little coloured wrapper off a, a a toffee um, and making my own my own light. Uh, so I guess it was at quite an early stage that my my career headed into uh, into lighting. Um, since then, it's encompassed over the over the decades um, product design, lighting application design. Uh, I've worked on lighting standards and I've worked with some of our lighting institutions. Um, but interesting, ref reflecting on the uh, this this podcast, uh, when I was uh, studying lighting at university, I was uh, lucky enough to uh, get an interment working in a fluorescent lamp factory. So I've seen every end of a fluorescent lamp being uh, developed, from the uh, the filament to the phosphor coating to the to the lamp at the other end. Well, it's interesting that there's been an evolution in lighting in your own life, uh, because we're going to be talking about the evolution of lighting in general today. Um, but let's jump into it. So light is obviously fundamental to our lives. Uh, light has been here since before we have, um, and will be here after us. Um, but the way human beings have been able to use and control light has changed dramatically throughout time. Um, well, let's start at the beginning. I guess we could say that the first age of light would be sunlight, is that right? Yes, uh, we we have grown up. In fact, we were we have developed on this this planet and over many thousands of years, hundreds of thousands of years um, with the regular rhythm of the sun coming up and the sun setting. And to some extent that has set our physiology, the way that we respond to light. So I think that uh, everything that we do ultimately relates back to sunlight and the way that we have grown up and developed with uh, with sunlight. I guess we could say the second age of light would be fire. So when we talk about fire, I think we're talking about creating light with fire. Uh, we get heat as part of the process, but many of our early forms of light um, were through heat that then creates light. And when we think about light with fire, I always reflect back on the uh, the Patagonian cave paintings and think, well, they could only have been created at that time, probably with fire as the as a light source. So we really think about how early in our evolution we've been using fire as a source of light. When we talk about light, we often talk also about controlling that light. 
and obviously sunlight we have no control over. Um, fire we have some control over, but it can get out of hand as we know. Um, but then we come to candles and, and oil lamps and, and so on. And um, to me, that's uh, it's sort of the first kind of artificial kind of light, I suppose, although the light source itself is natural. Um, but it gave people uh, more control over over light, would you would you say? Yeah, I think if we look at um, you know examples of Roman oil lamps, they were clearly there to give only light. They weren't there designed to give heat. They were the, the source of light that was all people had at that time. Um, and typically they were using animal fats to, to burn in these lamps to create uh, light. And in terms of control, it was very simple. It's either there or it's not there. You turn it on or you turn it off. The next development on from the oil lamp would, as you mentioned, be, be candles. So again, the, the, the first candles would have been based on animal fats, um, rather smelly. Uh, when people think about uh, using those in your home, it would have been typically the poor people that were using uh, tallow candles uh, because of the, the smell. Uh, people who had a little bit more money and the churches would use wax candles. These were um, much more uh, pleasant to to be around. They didn't emit a, a nasty nasty smell. Um, and in terms of numbers that we might recognise today, an interesting number is that the the candle gives you 0.16 of a lumen per watt. If we can create that heat into uh, into power, so that's a useful target to to start comparing all of our other light sources that, uh, that we have. Of course, we shouldn't also forget um, a little later on, more into the Industrial Revolution, uh, we were using gas as a source of light. Uh, so it's still, if you like, it's light by fire, but gas more controllable. Uh, you can place it in different places in your home. You can turn it on and off. And actually with gas, you can dim it a little bit. So you're starting to introduce some element of control in, the, in your light. So we've just covered a lot of ground from really from the beginning of the solar system right up through the Industrial Revolution in the 19th century. Uh, but now we come to the first really major revolution in lighting, I suppose you could say, um, in the late 1800s, um, which we would call the fourth age of light, I suppose. Uh, and this would be the introduction of the first electric light bulb. Now, this is widely referred to as the Edison bulb after inventor Thomas Alva Edison. But as I understand it, there's a lot more to that story. So let me let me just talk about creating light with electricity. Because here we start to introduce a second form of light. Um, the lamps that you'd referred to um, are indeed producing light by heat. But once we had electricity, we could also produce light by creating an arc. So this is like having a controlled spark. Um, and both these forms of light, light by an arc and light by heat, started to come on board about the same time. Um, but we don't tend to think so much of the early light sources being arc lamps because they were so bright. They were used perhaps outdoors for um, illuminating large areas, but certainly no, not suitable for lighting your, your home. And it's this subdivision of light trying to bring light down to a smaller package, which is where the, the first incandescent lamp um, was, was born. So 
the the, the story is, of course, that um, if you're uh, English, you would say that uh, the lamp was invented by Swan. If you're an American, you would say the lamp was invented by Edison. In fact, what happened was that Swan uh, invented it, but Edison, being a true American, patented it. And so for a few years, the two were fighting each other. Um, Swan was fighting the patents that Edison had. And in the end, um, I think it was uh, in the early um, 18, 1880s, the two came together and they formed the Edison light bulb company. And that was really when we started to see electric lighting taking off, not just uh, in the outdoor area, but in our homes, in our factories. Uh, and these early lamps were were produced by having carbonized bamboo, uh, which when you passed an electric current through it, glowed and created light. And we also think that actually the, the creation of the light bulb wasn't just to do with the filament and how we could create light. It was also to do with another development, which was a vacuum pump, which enabled these glass lamps to be evacuated. So all the air that would cause the filaments to, to burn out quickly could be taken out of the, uh, the lamp itself. So these very early carbon lamps now were giving us three lumens per watt. Consequently, we, we developed on from that, from carbonized bamboo filaments to a heating an electric wire, heating a tungsten wire, which has very good, good uh, strengths. So really, by the time we got to the 1920s, uh, the tungsten lamp, as we would know it even today, was born. And pretty much that was our common light source for particularly our homes um, up until the, the current time. So by the time we got to the tungsten light source, we're now generating 13 lumens per watt. Well, we're certainly going to talk about uh, the um, the radical changes in lighting that occurred in the 2010s, but let's not skip over fluorescent lighting uh, before we get there. So uh, as I understand it, and please correct me if I've got this wrong, um, you're still applying uh, an electrical current um, to uh, something to produce light, but in this case, it's a gas rather than a filament or a um, or a solid. Is that is that correct, more or less? It, yes, that's right. So uh, the, the fluorescent lamp is in effect um, an arc lamp. It's a low pressure uh, arc lamp, uh, but we're not generating um, light that we can see. We're generating light we can't see, which is ultraviolet, and that is then used to activate a fluorescent powder on the inside of the lamp to produce light. So the, the arc itself is uh, constant, but depending upon the mix of powders that we will put into the fluorescent lamp, you could have a whole range of different uh, colours and, uh, uh, and, and colour temperatures. So you could have cool lamps, lamps that appear to be cool white, you could have lamps that appear to be warm white. You could even have coloured lamps if you wanted to. And for some decorative applications, you could have pure red, pure green, pure blue, um, whatever colour you wanted to put on the on the phosphor itself. So the fluorescent lamp came in round about the same time as the that those early tungsten lamps. 1926 is the date that I've got here. And uh, by the time the fluorescent lamp had had peaked in terms of its efficiency, we were getting something like 100 lumens per watt from the uh, from the fluorescent lamp. So you can start to see now why 
we were able to um, take the fluorescent concept, miniaturize it, fold the fluorescent lamp into small tubes and make it as something that we could plug in and replace our tungsten lamp with. Uh, not only improving the efficiency from 13 up to 100, um, but also achieving, relatively speaking, good colour quality. Now, along the line in between there, we had some other light sources um, primarily used for outdoor lighting. So we had uh, the low pressure sodium lamp, exactly the same uh, concept as the, um, the fluorescent, except that by putting sodium into the arc, you gener generated uh, a very warm orange glow. These were very efficient, but they really didn't have any color, good color properties. So if you wanted to light a road, they were quite a good way of lighting a road, um, but you couldn't tell the difference between a brown car and a red car. Um, to, to solve that in the 1960s, we saw the high pressure sodium lamp. And this is one of those stories that they talk about as a spin-off from the space race, the ceramic art tube of the, um, the high pressure sodium lamp, which had to take the very aggressive nature of sodium at those temperatures and pressures, was developed on the back of the heat shield that was used on the Apollo spacecraft for, for re-entry. So it was a materials development that led to the high pressure sodium lamp. And that again became a very popular light source for all forms of uh, outdoor lighting and indeed some indoor lighting uh, in industry, perhaps some um, heavy industry often used uh, high pressure sodium. And on our number scale, that comes out at uh, 120 lumens per watt. So we keep increasing in efficiency uh, and that takes us right up through to the 1990s, I believe. Uh, where we come to another inventor. Um, we had Swan and Edison uh, with the incandescent light bulb, but now we come to uh, Nobel Prize in Physics laureate Shuji Nakamura, who is credited with the invention of the blue LED in the 1990s. Um, so Mike, why was the blue LED so important and, and maybe more fundamentally, what exactly is LED light and why is it so different? Okay, so, so let me ask the second question, answer the second question first. So we've had um, light through heat, we've had light through an arc. With um, an LED, uh, you have um, electrons that are passing through a solid material, through silicon, um, same material as we use to make our, our chips, um, our computer chips with. Um, but what happens as the, the, the electrons pass through this material, they change their energy state, and as they lose energy, they emit light. And that's all to do with the, the, the chemistry uh, of the uh, material that's being passed through. Uh, if you want to know more than that, it's a, it's a fairly sophisticated lesson in physics, um, but it's, a, it's an, another way of, um, of creating light, visible light. So people will probably remember um, if they go back, you had, uh, in fact, little LED, sorry, little uh, yeah, LED indicators in uh, electronic devices, usually red or green to tell you that they were on or off. So producing light in this way wasn't new. What was new when uh, Shudi created the, the blue LED was it opened the door to white light. So either by mixing the blue with red and green, which we already had, we could create white light through color mixing. But also the blue LED had a fairly strong um, emission band towards the, the blue ultraviolet area. 
So if we coated the LED chip, the blue LED chip with a phosphor, just like we did with the fluorescent lamp, you could produce white light. So the blue was really the, the, the door opener to LED not being used for perhaps, you know, some rather um, specialist uh, decorative effects, but really being used as an alternative to all the other light sources that, uh, uh, that we had. So when you say an alternative, you mean that um, LED lighting then became uh, available for general illumination, correct? Uh, absolutely. I've, I've sort of tried to to track it a little bit um, because when the LED lamp uh, lamps were first produced, they had an efficacy sort of similar to the the, the fluorescent lamp. Um, but we first started to see them being used outdoors in in street lighting, where we could produce a, a relatively cool white white light uh, because the the cooler light source was more efficient than the warmer light source. Um, and then we started to see them move indoors as we were able to produce warmer colours without a loss of uh, efficiency. So round about, um, I, I think around about 2006, we started the, to see them in outdoor lighting, um, retail and office applications, probably about 2010. Uh, 2014, we started to see them replace the very high-powered, high-intensity discharge lamps in sport. Uh, so, um, you know, a, a, a football stadium being broadcast for tele colour television sort of application. Um, and by, by 2016, uh, they'd uh, encompassed the entertainment sector where the, the moving lights, the coloured lights that you see on any uh, uh, pop group, any tour, um, were typically then being created with, uh, with LED as against tungsten light sources. So if you think about the journey from the, the first tungsten lamp, 1879, it, it took 100 years to really, for us really start to see new light sources develop. From the creation of the blue LED, 1990, to the beginning of LED light sources, to where we are today. It's a relatively short period of time. So I think it's been a revolution in lighting. Um, and, I, and I think another interesting fact, because the LED today is at 250 lumens per watt. I don't think any of us thought when it was first um, created that we'd ever get as high as 250. But if, if you go back to, uh, go back 20, 30 years, 19% of the electrical energy that's been generated in the world was spent on lighting. That figure's now down at 14, and that is predominantly down to the adoption and the use of the LED technology. So clearly, the LED lighting is very important for the energy efficiency initiatives and sustainability initiatives that are being uh, pursued throughout the world. Uh, is there a theoretical limit to the efficacy of an LED? We're at uh, 250. Can, can we go higher? We can We can go higher. It's it's largely down to process technology. Um, it's, it's getting, it's being able to push as much energy into the LED itself um, before it, it heats. Um, any semiconductor device is temperature sensitive. The hotter it gets, the less, less efficient it is. 
So what we want to do is to push as much energy in as we can um, and get the heat taken away so that we can generate lots of lots of light. Well, Mike, we've certainly covered a lot of ground, uh, but now we've arrived at the current moment, um, the sixth age of light, uh, which is really the fusion of data and illumination, if you will. Um, can you talk a little bit about that uh, and what it means for uh, lighting um, systems and, and how we use light today? So I, I think the first thing, of course, is that the LED is a semiconductor device. Um, so therefore it can respond to other electronic devices uh, to, to data in a, in a similar way. So whilst we get light out, we can also get data back out from these, these devices themselves. So perhaps whereas with a tungsten lamp, you, you would look at it and go, well, I don't know how much longer it's got to last or how it's operating. Is it operating at its rated temperature? Is it above its temperature? With an LED, we can start to get this two-way communication. So we send data to it to tell it what to do. So of course we can turn it on and off and we can dim it, but potentially we've also got the ability to, to change color. So everything that we want to do in terms of control, we can do with LEDs, but we get information that comes back that perhaps will tell us a little bit about um, it, its status, how it's how it's working, perhaps how long it's got left um, to operate. LEDs tend not to just fail, i.e. they cut out. They gradually lose light. So there comes a point at which you say, well, the amount of light that, that we've now lost um, means that it needs to be replaced. But I think it's also, um, it has opened up the whole field of um, giving feedback on not just the device itself, but the environment in which it's operating. Uh, so we could have uh, data that uh, is being picked up if we're out in a street. Uh, it could count the number of people. You know, we can count people through through camera technology, and the lighting could adjust itself according to the number of people that are that are there. Um, another interesting example of, uh, of of data feedback is if you go to a modern um, uh, a, a modern concert that uses follow spots. You know, in the old days. Somebody would be hanging from the roof um, in a harness, maybe with a, a light following the person. Now, the uh, the singer or the actor will have a little beacon on them. They will be sending data to a system. The system controls the light, and the light will follow them wherever they go. And and those are just 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 two examples. Um, you know, we obviously have in in offices the ability to control light relative to. Um, the ambient light that's coming into our office. So we're only using the light uh, when we need to. When we've got free daylight coming in, we don't need to. That's something we were doing with fluorescent lighting. But uh, I think that with the with the data feedback that we can now get with our current systems, it makes um, the control, our connected light systems, um, much more flexible. Do you have any thoughts about what the future of light might be? That's a very difficult question when we've just gone through such a, a, a revolution in lighting um, and we've gone to places that certainly when I started my career in lighting, I could never have imagined, um, you know, controllability, efficacy. Uh, and you look around and there's nowhere immediately obvious 
that you would say, well, there's a new, a, a new technology coming along that, um, that could even surpass the LED. But then right at the beginning of certainly my career, I couldn't have looked at the LED and thought it could have done what we're doing now. So in terms of predicting the, the future, I, I think there, there are some drivers, sustainability. Uh, so we want to, of course, always reduce energy, but the materials that we're using to make these, these um, light sources now, um, they all use rare earth minerals. Um, they have to be mined. If we can find a way of reducing our dependence on some of these minerals, then that could be a driver for future light sources. Um, we've talked about three methods of producing light. That's heat, um, arcs and, and um, semiconductors, but maybe bioluminescence. You know, we have um, bugs that can, can emit light. Maybe that could be a, a, a fourth way of producing light. Um, difficult to, to predict how we would get uh, the quantity of light we need. And at the moment, you'd need to take a jam jar full of bugs around with you as your as your light source but um who knows that could be uh, that could be the, uh, uh, the 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 future signify lighting talks is a podcast series featuring the leading thinkers and speakers from the world of lighting my name is jonathan weinert on behalf of signify the global leader at lighting i wish you a brighter life 